Mary was 16. And over the summer, Mary became a Christian. She went away to summer camp. She heard talks from the book of Romans. And she, for the first time, saw the depths of her failings. And so Mary wonderfully turned to Christ. Uh, Mary couldn't wait to tell her parents' pastor. She's all ready to come bounding into church to talk about when she could be baptized. But on Sunday, Mary felt too sad to speak. For on Saturday, despite her new life, Mary briefly returned to her old life. She'd searched for something on her phone that she wished that she hadn't. And so in church, Mary just sat there, feeling wretched. Jay was 26, and over the summer, Jay had been on Mary's camp. He'd seen the joy of, of Mary's conversion. He'd also heard the talks on Romans. He'd saw the beauty of Christ once more, and he sang with gusto at camp, and he couldn't wait to get back to his, his own church family and, and to sing likewise. But on Sunday... Jay also felt too sad to speak because on Saturday, Jay had sinned again. He'd gone back out with an old college fraternal and one beer quickly turned to two, to three, to four. And so in church, Jay just sat there feeling wretched. Abigail was 46 and over the summer, her daughter Mary became a Christian. Her daughter's faith was now infectious. Indeed, Mary had made Abigail reread Romans, and Abigail now just couldn't wait for the new sermon series. But on Sunday, Abigail also felt too sad to speak. For on Saturday, Abigail sinned again. She had sent a nasty email to another church member. It was vindictive and reputation damaging. It was gossipy and in part untrue. And it wasn't the first time she'd sent an email like that. And so in church, Abigail just sat there feeling wretched. Richard was 66. And over the summer, Richard had preached at many of those camps. He'd seen teenagers like Mary coming to Christ, and he'd seen young people like Jay growing in their faith. And as a pastor, he'd never seen so much fruit. And so he reveled in the thought of preaching Romans upon his return to his own flock. He thought of Mary and Jay and Abigail sitting there in front of him, all eager to learn of their life in Christ. But on Sunday, Richard felt too sad to speak. For on Saturday, Richard sinned again. He'd really lost it with his wife the night before. And that which he had seen in his father growing up was seemingly the man he was always bound to be. And so in church, Richard just sat there feeling wretched. Well, the characters are fictional, but the feelings are not. Indeed, I wonder on this post-summer back-to-school Sunday, how many teenage Marys and how many 20-something Jays and how many ladies like Abigail there are here and how many Richards have stood behind this pulpit. Whether you are 16 or 26 or 46 or 66, whether you are a very young Christian or whether you're an old pastor, whether you profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this summer or half a century of summers ago, how many of you are sitting here and are feeling wretched today 
because of wearisome sin done yesterday. How many of you are sitting here feeling insecure because some sins, well, they just seem so obstinate? My friends, what should Christians do with stubborn sin? What should Christians do with stubborn sin? This morning we start a new series. In one of the most famous uh, chapters of the Bible, for scattered amid our, our first and second Samuel series, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 and what it means to have the Holy Spirit. And particularly this morning, I want to address that question that I've just asked. What should Christians do with stubborn sin? What should Christians do when they feel wretched, when sin leaves them feeling insecure? But before we do that, I want to get us our bearings in this marvelous letter written by the Apostle Paul out of the first century church in Rome. Because as I mentioned in my introduction, the, the book of Romans really does explain to us what becoming a Christian is all about. It is the classic material for a summer Bible camp. Because the first four chapters of Romans basically unpacks the whole Christian message. For in chapter one, we learn that God is righteous, faithful to his every promise. He is he's perfectly good and just. But in the opening two chapters, we also learn that, that humans sadly are the opposite to God. Humans are unfaithful to God and they are unjust with each other. And Paul is pretty blunt about how far this human problem reaches. In Romans 3 verse 10, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God, all have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. But wonderfully, in chapter 3, Paul also reveals the good news for humanity. The good news that the good news that Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Namely, that by trusting in Jesus, Christians could have a new forgiven status, a, a new family, a church, a, a new future in heaven. Accordingly, having explained how ordinary sinful people like him get that new life in the first four chapters, Paul then explains how Christians have confidence in that new life in chapters five onwards. And so in chapter five, we, we learn that Christians have confidence in this new life because they are joined to Jesus. They're no longer in Adam, but in Christ, no longer like the first human who rebelled against God, but one who is righteous before God. And likewise in chapter six, we, we learn that Christians have confidence of this new life because they are joined to Jesus. For Christians have been baptized into Christ. Their new life in Jesus was pictured in their baptism when they went down into the waters of death and then were raised to new life. And as a result of that, in chapter 7, Paul tells these Christians, primarily converted from Judaism, that the Old Testament law was limited. Yes, God's law helps people to see their old life but it cannot give people new life. The Mosaic law is helpful in the sense that a, that a CT scan is helpful, but the law is not that necessary heart transplant. But wonderfully, as Christians, Paul says, that is what we have. The old life is gone, that the new life has come. But, but in chapter seven, verse 14, something rather odd and unexpected happens. 
Indeed, if you zoned out for that, that overview, come back into the room and look with me to, to chapter 7. Uh, that's the big number 7. And, and, and verse 14, that's the little number 14. For here Paul explains the tension between his new life desires as a Christian and his actions which reflect his old life. You see, for many chapters, Paul has been speaking in the past tense. Roman Christians, he says, this is what we once were. We were evil, lost, enslaved, dead in Adam. Before we were in Christ, we were in the sinful flesh. And yet, can you see, end of verse 14, Paul oddly says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And this present tense misery continues in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Likewise, verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul already has this glorious new life in Jesus. He's been proclaiming it for the last seven chapters. But like a groomed dog returning to its own vomit... Paul often keeps returning to his old life, which no doubt made Paul sick on a Sunday morning, feeling like Mary and Jay and Abigail and Richard and maybe you here this morning. We'll look at verse 24 of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What should Christians do with stubborn sin? What should Christians do when they're feeling wretched, when sin leaves them feeling insecure? Well, the short answer from Romans chapter 8 is that Christians must live according to the Spirit. Christians must live according to the Spirit, which means when it comes to the stubborn sinner of chapter 7, practically it means that the Christian should not fall into two natural responses to sin, but one supernatural response to sin. So three points uh, this morning. You'll see them in your service guide. Two natural responses that wretched Christians are, are no longer to continue in and one supernatural action that wretched Christians are to cultivate. If you look in your back of your service guide, you'll see that the first uh, natural action that wretched Christians are, are no longer to continue in is to remain feeling guilty. Point one this morning, verses one to four. Guilty over sin, question mark. Christian, do you feel guilty over sin? Before we unpack that question, let me start with another question. Let me ask you, is guilt good? Is feeling guilty a, a good thing? Well, I'm no psychologist, but I've read enough to know that most modern secular psychologists disagree. Uh, Professor Dan Ailey of Duke University tells us that guilt is dangerous for civilization. He says what we find in our experiments on guilt is that once people start thinking of themselves as polluted, there is not much incentive for them to behave well. But Professor Tina Malti of the University of Toronto tells us that guilt is beneficial for society. She writes, guilt can make us pro-social because empathy, empathetic proclivity is caused when we harm and then feel regret. While Professor David Burns of Stanford University tells us that guilt is pointless. 
if we're to be happy. He says, what is the point of abusing yourself with guilt? If you made a mistake and acted in a hurtful way, your guilt won't reverse the blunder in some magical manner. Your guilt won't speed your learning processes so you'll not make the same mistake again. Other people won't respect you more. Nor will your guilt lead to productive living. So what's the point? Whether we strive to, to push guilt away for the sake of civilization, or whether we seek to cultivate guilt in ourselves as a society, or whether we see guilt as pointless for it stops us just having a good time, the fact remains everyone feels guilty at times. And whether guilt is good or not, it cannot just be turned off and on like a tap. For no doubt everyone in this room, whether this morning or another morning, has woken up feeling inescapably guilty. For guilt comes to us, punching us in public, in the form of a sudden blow, or suffocating us in secret like a weighted blanket. Guilt does not simply come and go at our command. And that is because guilt is not just public disgrace or private disquiet, but guilt has to do with the divine. Our guilt has something to do with God who built us and built us for relationship with him. And though we may seek to hide from God and his ways or convince ourselves that our guilt is only there because an older generation has passed down to us some antiquated living standards, the truth is that guilt is unavoidable because we are all made in God's good image and deep down we all know that we fail and not just ourselves and other people, but the very one who made us. And so is guilt a good thing? Well, in a sense, in the first instance, yes. For feelings of guilt are those inner wailing sirens that remind us that we've violated God's good ways. Indeed, my friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian, firstly, you're very welcome here. But secondly, have you ever considered that your aching guilt might actually be God's strange kindness to you as he draws you to realize who you are? Have you ever considered that your guilt might actually be your maker's very kind and caring placement of that inner alarm clock which wails, wake up. Wake up to the fact that you don't even keep the laws that you expect other people to keep. Never mind God's law. Have you ever considered like the murderous and adulterous King David in Psalm 51 that God often breaks bones to create new hearts? Guilt for the one who discards God is good. Guilt is appropriate for the one who continues to reject the wonderful laws of the wonderful judge. But in the context of chapter 7, where Paul describes the Christian life, this new life for the one in Christ, guilt is not right. Or at least to remain in that state of wretchedness is wrong. For Paul doesn't stay in guilt long, does he? Do you notice that? Paul feels his wretchedness in, in chapter 7, verse 24, but he doesn't stay there more than a verse. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And why, chapter 8, verse 1, next verse, can he be free from guilt? Well, how does the passage begin? For there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Guilt, that inner ache, 
that we all experience as we sense God's deep disapproval of us. Guilt, that, that truth that justice deserves to fall on me is now amazingly inapplicable and inapt. Now, those who live by the Spirit will, will still sin, and those with the Spirit will feel bruised by their sin and may momentarily feel their wretchedness having grieved the Spirit. But for the one who lives under the new law of the Spirit, who has been freed from the old law of sin and death, there is to be no guilt, for there is no condemnation. And specifically, why is there no condemnation? Why can the Christian's guilt be let go of? Left to drift away gloriously forever like a solitary balloon on, on a summer's day in a way that the non-Christian's guilt never can? Is it because the Christian has managed to refute their wrongdoing? I was falsely accused. My crimes were not that bad. Or is it because the Christian has spent enough time in sorrow? My guilt was punishment enough for the deeds that I did? Or is it because the Christian has really tried hard, better than anyone, to do better? I've reformed. I've given to charity. I've gone to church. Or is it because the Christian has managed to successfully compare themselves to other people? Yes, I made a mistake, but I'm not as bad as him or her. No. This no condemnation has nothing to do with what the Christian has done there is to be no more guilt because verse 3, look there, because God has done. God has done past. God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For in sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul explains that it is not that God's condemnation has not fallen. God's condemnation has fallen and has fallen on sinful flesh but it has fallen on the sinless Son of God. Jesus, the one who cloaked himself in our sinful flesh when he was condemned in the place of his friends. And so, my friend, if you are a friend of Jesus, he clothed himself in your sinful body and mine. And at the cross, God executed his judgment on your sinful human flesh. So that those who live in the spirit cannot be condemned because their sinful flesh has already been condemned. Can you see? For the one who is in the spirit, the one who is in Christ, condemnation is not waiting in the wings, ready to strike us down at the end. Guilt may no longer hide in, in those shadows, ready to pounce the next time we sin. No, the glorious truth, it is the glorious truth of that Wesley hymn. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Feelings of great guilt before a holy God are in Christ turned to feelings of great boldness, to run into the arms of a perfectly just father who cannot possibly condemn his children again. Your condemnation has already fallen. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, I'm not sure how many of you 
came into church this morning feeling guilty. I'm sure that many of you came into church just kind of feeling fine, ordinary. But in a room as large as this, I'm sure that many came in feeling despicable and condemned and guilty. And my friend, I don't know what sins you committed yesterday. I don't know what sins from your youth send you spinning back into guilt and shame. Or or which sins which you seem to commit daily now, make you cry out like Paul in Romans chapter seven, oh wretched man that I am. I don't know whether guilt for you is like a quick punch to the stomach that leaves you speechless in public or whether guilt for you is that which has so suffocated you in private that you struggle even to be amongst God's people today. All I know is that if If you live in the spirit, if you are in Christ, if you trust him, then those deeds have already been condemned. Now you may not feel like they have. Indeed, you may experience the relational consequences for years to come. But when it comes to your guilt and therefore your relationship with God, it is done. Whether that sin that haunts you was decades ago or last year, or just last night, whether you were in prison, or in the wild college fraternal, or whether you were in the Satanist gathering, or in your bedroom alone, whether you were in the abortion clinic, or in your house raging at your children. Friends, if you are in the spirit, in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus to be condemned in your place this very morning, you need not sit in silence. You need no longer stay in guilt. What do Christians do when they feel wretched? When sin leaves them insecure? Firstly, those in the spirit must do what is not natural. Wonderfully, they must not feel guilty of a sin. But secondly, in verses five to eight, being supernatural people, normal Christians give in to sin. That's point two this morning. Giving in to sin, question mark. Christian, are you giving in to sin? In 2017, uh, the Portuguese artist, João Roca, uh, was fed up with what he called the spectrum. In fact, speaking in an interview on CNBC, he said the idea that you have all these differences that, that span religion and gender and age and nationality and politics, that frustrated me. Paul, there are clearly just two types of people in this world. And so in a series of drawings, I have identified them. Accordingly, fascinated by his claims, I decided to purchase uh, Rocker's book just this week, entitled uh, Two Kinds of People. And if I show you the front cover of his book, uh, you will see... Uh, that Rocker's devastating discovery is that the key divide across all human history is the way that people install toilet paper in their bathrooms. (laughs) Apparently there are two people in this world. There are those who put the toilet paper going over and there are those who put the toilet paper going under. Or whether you're an artist like Rocker or not, I wonder what picture you might draw. How would you divide humanity into two? Male and female, maybe? 
The married and the single, perhaps, the American, the non-American, the upper class, the working class, the Democrat, the Republican. Well, in verses 5 to 8, we read of God's division and his drawing is stark. For Paul reveals that there are just two types of people. Those who now live or walk in the Spirit and those who still live or walk in sinful flesh. Well, I'll come to the former in our final point, but just for a minute, let us dwell upon the latter, uh, the one who still walks according to the flesh, that the one who rejects the fact that, that Jesus has come in the flesh to be condemned uh, in the flesh for our sin. What does the one who lives in the sinful flesh do? Well, verse 5, please read along with me so that you can see that this division is not mine, but God's. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Can you see, according to God, there are not nine kinds of people, as the Enneagram enthusiasts would have us think. There are not nearly nine billion kinds of people, as the everyone is unique types would have us say. No, there's two types of people, two kinds of people who walk two types of walk. There are those who walk an old way, still following the flesh, and there are those who walk a new way now following the Spirit. And how are we to know which of the two we are? What does this, this walking, this living look like? Well, verse 5 tells us, those who live by the sinful flesh set their mind on it. They see it and they study it and they set out to follow it. And so the term set their mind on obviously includes the thoughts of the mind, but not only that but also the affections and the emotions and the desires. And so when someone sets their minds on the things of the flesh, as opposed to the things of the divine spirit, certainly that includes the sensual pleasures of the body, but it also includes all that is done in a life without God. Accordingly, we must see here that those who set their minds on the flesh are not necessarily obviously wicked people. In fact, it's worth remembering which believers Paul has in mind here in these chapters, for Paul writes to Jews. In fact, he just warned his audience about putting their confidence in obeying the law. Accordingly, the, those who walk in the flesh that, that Paul has in mind are actually the most moral people of the day. For pious, well-educated Jews in the city of Rome were about as far away from a wild Greco-Roman pagan as you could get. Accordingly, as the great preacher in London, Martin Lloyd-Jones, highlighted in his own day in the 1960s, quote, the tragedy of the matter in Romans 8 is that many people think that this description that they have set their mind on the things of the flesh applies only to open, obvious, reckless sinners, people on the streets and people in the pubs. But the fact is it includes very moral people, highly intellectual people, and people whom the world describes as very noble. 
for the things of the flesh includes political interests without God and social interests without God and cultural interests without God. For Paul has in mind man's highest pursuits, his philosophy, his art, his culture, his music that never get beyond the flesh. God is outside it all. He is excluded from it. Men may write very cleverly and they may produce masterpieces of art and of literature and of music, but there is no soul there. There is no God. And so the good, cultured, well-spoken, moral man is as devoid of the spirit as the most obvious sinner. He is outside the life of God as much as the other, and he hates to be told this, of course. And so as Christians, what do we learn from all this? What do we learn from it? Well, three very quick applications from God's illustration, from his very stark division of humanity. Uh, Firstly, if we're Christians, we we must recall that this division is a picture of what our old life was like before God entered it. Friends, if you are a Christian, this is how you and I lived. Before God graciously invaded our hearts for what we once were, set on a life without God, gratifying the body, that was headed to death, doing deeds that showed great opposition to God and therefore being unable to please our wonderful maker in anything that we did. Verse seven is striking. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. My Christian friends, what amazing kindness of God to enter hearts like ours that they were set on self and wanted nothing to do with him. For him to enter our defiled hearts as we read earlier in Mark chapter seven, the words of Jesus. What a grace of God for him to enter our hearts when they could not possibly please him. What a mercy of God for him to breathe new life into hearts while all the while they were hostile towards him. What great meditation on this great division should produce great humility in us and great thankfulness to God and great sympathy for our unbelieving friends and family. But secondly, if we're a Christian, can you you see that this single division between, between one of the flesh and one of the spirit shows us that there is no first class and second class Christian? You see, very sadly, some people have taught Romans chapter eight, a chapter that is written to make people feel secure as Christians in a way that has actually made believers insecure. For some have used this idea of, of living according to the spirit to speak of that kind of higher Christianity. A higher life Christianity does speak of a a two-stage Christianity. A Christianity where in the first stage, Jesus saves believers. And then much later, in, in the second stage, the Spirit comes to some believers and he allows them to live victorious lives. Indeed, it is often evidenced by those who say, if you really want to experience Christianity in full, then you now must be quenched by the Spirit. And friends, can you see through this clear two-way division between the Christian and the non-Christian, between the one who has the Spirit and the one who sadly does not, how this shows us that the Holy Spirit is not some kind of potential booster for Christians who really want to go for it. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of like Gatorade energy-like beverage for the great athlete 
who keeps on disappearing when they should be dominating, as the new Gatorade advert goes. You know, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's not like a drink to energize the elite Christian. He's like a doctor who has already brought every dead Christian to life. And so if we trust in Christ to bring us from death, then we can have confidence that we have the Spirit. We cannot possibly have one member of the Trinity without the other. But thirdly, and most importantly, can you see how this division, how this, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit division is really key for thinking through our central question this morning. For what should a Christian do with stubborn sin? For being in the spirit, being in Christ, that the Christian does not feel guilt over sin, but also the Christian does not give in to sin. As for the non-Christian, well, he or she gives in to sin all the time. For the non-Christian, it is sadly spiritually dead. They try, they set their mind on, on death, verse 6. The one without the spirit follows the desires of the flesh. They, they sin and they kind of shrug their shoulders. They may feel guilt, but they feel no real compulsion to stop. Indeed, they cannot stop. And so like a dead tree sailing down the river, or like driftwood floating on the sea. They just go with the flow of sinful desire. The Christian is now spiritually alive. They are no longer like driftwood, but they are like a dog on a leash. Indeed, the young Christian feels like that kind of training collar of their good master around them tightly. The spirit wounds them when they wander as a young pup. The Spirit pinches them as they, as they follow old paths and as they learn to no longer run down dis, trails of dishonesty or put their gossipy noses into holes of misery or jump into the river of desire that flows to death. Because being alive in the Spirit, they walk with him, keep in step with him. Accordingly, can you see, friends, that the most alarming possible response to sin is the response of the one who claims to have the spirit but who gives into their sin all the time and no longer cares about sin and no longer feels any anguish for their sin for the one who throws off the leash of God's word and jumps into the river claiming to be a dog is actually no different from driftwood and may in truth actually be driftwood. You know, friends, before I became a pastor, the potential pastoral meeting that, that I'd always dread coming up was the tragic pastoral meeting. The one where I'd envision perhaps speaking to someone whose loved one died or perhaps a spouse that had something awful to confess to their spouse. But friends, let me tell you, the most dreadful pastoral meeting is when someone who calls themselves a Christian gives in to sin often and has no remorse. When someone who says they have the spirit stubbornly sets their mind on the flesh. When someone looks at the words of scripture yet will not yield to what God says. When someone basically says, I have Jesus as my eternal insurance policy. I can now live how I like. 
Because to walk that way is surely to bring into question whether they have Christ. For as we have seen from God's stark drawing of humanity, there's no third kind of person. There's no middle of the road kind of walking. There is no pacifist when it comes to either war with God or sin. There is no no man's land, no spiritual Switzerland. And so for those whose lips pour out anger and malice daily and say, well, I just am who I am. Those whose eyes feast on pornography weekly and give into it without any sadness at all. Those whose hands steal from their employer monthly and set their minds upon doing it. Those whose feet march to the beat of culture and walk in a way despite many warnings. What else must we sadly conclude other than they are seemingly, wretchedly self-deceived that seemingly they are not the spiritual man or woman for they give into sin like the natural man and woman. My Christian friends, in the same way that we all must work not to feel guilt when we occasionally stumble and fall So we must all work carefully to consider how we are walking and whether we are still in the sinful flesh. And so for the final time, what should Christians do when they feel wretched? When sin leaves them insecure? Well, we've already seen how we should not feel guilt over sin like the natural person. And we've already seen that the grave danger of of giving in to sin like the natural person. So what should the supernatural person do with sin? Final point this morning, the Christian must gut sin. Point three this morning, gutting sin, question mark. Christian, are you gutting sin? By way of public confession, let me tell you in no uncertain terms, that I do not like fishing. I do not like fishing. And in a way it's rather odd because my oldest son loves it. And actually some of my dearest friends here at church love it. And I love being in nature. And I love being quiet. And I love throwing things. And I love competition. Indeed, I think I really would quite like fishing if it wasn't for the fish. Because quite frankly, fish are gross. And whilst I love the kind of the thrill of seeing one reeled in, I, I really don't know how to deal with it afterwards. Indeed, what is even worse than, than seeing people unhook the, the fish is, is when, when certain fishermen then gut the fish. It's not that I mind a fish being gutted. I like fish and chips as much as the average Englishman. And call me a hypocrite, but whilst I'm happy for things to be gutted for my benefit, I recall the idea of gutting them myself and particularly doing it for a hobby. But you know that the gory and the gross work of gutting is actually what this passage calls every Christian to. Look with me to verse 12. Paul's concluding imperative. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are those in the spirit called to do with stubborn sin? We are called to gut sin in our lives. We are called to put to death the deeds of the body. Literally, the verb means to do bloody violence to. 
And why are we to act in this barbaric, fisherman-like way when it comes to our sinful thoughts and words and deeds? Well, firstly, because the, the Christian has no choice. For the Christian is in a fight. For look at verses 9 and 10. The Spirit of God dwells in you at verse 9, and yet we also still live in sinful bodies, verse 10. So whether we want a fight or not, the fight is coming to us. For there is a royal rumble inside every single Christian's heart. Indeed, we get that sense. We get a sense of that, don't we, in, in Paul's cry in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, the unspiritual life of the unbeliever, there is no battle at all. They understand their actions, and they do what they want to do, and they love what they do. But the Christian fights the old man whilst he lives in the new man. They do not finally sit in silence when they sin, like Mary and Jay and Abigail and Richard, that the Christian gets up, gets up again, and he fights. For the Christian is not merely the one who believes and remains where they are, for they have been moved in both position and action. Positionally freed in the spirit, for they are forgiven, and being freed in the spirit, they fight. Accordingly, friends, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, let me level with you. It's hard. It's hard. For becoming a Christian is a commitment to gutting your own sin. Not other people's sin, primarily, but uncomfortably gutting your own gross flesh. Gutting sin will mean excruciating cuts as you get to sin which has been hiding in fleshly corners for ages. And gutting sin will mean embarrassing confessions as you will willingly expose private sin to other people because you see the importance of getting their help with it. Gutting sin will mean not excusing sin because you've built up this reputation as being a mature Christian or because you are obsessed with protecting yourself because you have started to feel the cuts of others who have started to see your sin. And yet if you do become a Christian, that this gutting of sin, though very painful, is actually something that will give you great confidence. That you are who you are that you are a new person, that you have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Yes, there is much grossness in gutting, but there is also much gladness when we do. Friends, the happiest Christians I know are the ones who have gutted the most sin and who speak freely of their past and present grossness and yet still celebrate the spirit's blade. But finally this morning, as we consider stubborn sin as Christians and the task of putting the body to death, I want to encourage us, not simply by reminding us that we must expect to be gutted, not simply to encourage us by reminding us to be doing that, that gutting both in, in private and, and in public, but as we consider stubborn sin as Christians, I want to encourage us by reminding us that because we have the spirit, that soon there will be no more getting to do. But look with me to the glorious verse 11, with which we shall close our time. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see what Paul's saying here? For for he basically answers his own question in 724. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer the spirit will. He will do it. For Paul has spoken of the Spirit's past work and the Spirit dwelling in us to to remind us that there is no condemnation in the flesh for God has condemned sinful flesh in Christ. And Paul has spoken of the present work of the Spirit too and the Spirit dwelling in us, helping us to keep gutting the flesh. But here Paul speaks of the future work of the Spirit. For what will the Spirit do in the future? What will he do? Well, he will give new life to our mortal flesh. One day when we die, that the Spirit will bring us to glorious new perfection and eternal life, giving us new and completely sinless bodies. And how do we know? How do we know that such a great promise is true? Because we already have a sure and certain example. For the spirit that dwells within us is the same spirit that dwelt within Christ who raised Christ from death and gave him a new eternal body. And if the spirit did this for Christ, then he will do it for anyone in whom he dwells. Friends, what a marvelous encouragement when we are tempted to feel guilty over sin, when we're tempted to give in to sin, when we're tempted not to get sin. One day very soon, we will be completely redeemed and delivered from these wretched bodies of sin and death. And through the Spirit, we will stand with Christ in glory. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to you in boldness. We come to you in boldness because we come to you in Christ in the Spirit, fearing no condemnation before you, knowing that all sin is done, knowing that wonderfully no guilt remains in us. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you would help us to be who we are and that which we will be soon that we would be strong in the strength that you've given us in the spirit, that we would fight sin, knowing that that outcome is secure. Holy Spirit, would you help us not to stay lost in the cloud of guilt? Help us not to give in to the old man. Help us to gut sin in all humility seeing who we often still are, often still tempted to be, and help us to gut sin with urgency because of what you will make us soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.